Section 11 of Dogmatic Theology, Soteriology, by William G. T. Shedd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Means of Grace The means of grace are means of sanctification. They suppose the existence of the principle of divine life in the soul, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. Larger Catechism, 154. The means of grace are administered within the visible church and to its members. Footnote. When the world of unregenerate men are said to have the means of grace, the means of conviction under common grace, not of sanctification under special grace, are intended. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves, and drawing them unto Christ. Larger Catechism, 155. End footnote consequently church membership is requisite for obtaining the benefits of the means of grace and sanctification some of these benefits cannot be enjoyed at all outside of the visible church those namely connected with the administration of the sacraments and the fellowship and watch of christians and none of them can be enjoyed in their fullness by one who has not separated himself from the world by confessing christ before men footnote Respecting the nature of the church, Calvin presents the Protestant view in two fundamental positions. A. That the church may exist without a visible form, because it is both invisible and visible. The former is composed of all who are really united to Christ, the latter of all who profess to be united to Christ. The former has no false members, the latter has, as the parables of the tares and the net show b that the visible form of the church is not distinguished by external splendour but by the pure preaching of god's word and the legitimate administration of the sacraments the romanist contends that the church exists only in a visible form and that this form is in the see of rome and her order of prelates alone rome makes the invisible and visible churches identical and coterminous for a concise and able statement of the prelatical theory of the church see jeremy taylor's consecration sermon End footnote. 1. Confession of faith and church fellowship is a means of sanctification. This is one of the ordinances of Christ, all of which, according to the Westminster Statement, are means of grace. Christ commands his disciples to confess him before men. Matthew ten thirty two and 33. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Compare Matthew sixteen sixteen to 18 The use of this means of spiritual growth is often enjoined in the epistles, Romans 10, 9 and 10, Hebrews 10, 25. Man is a social being, and his religious, like his secular welfare, depends upon association with others like-minded. Confession of faith and church membership promote sanctification, a. By personal sympathy, b. By the watch and discipline of fellow Christians. Those who cherish a hope that they are believers, yet make no public acknowledgment of their faith, omit an important means of grace, and hinder their own sanctification. Moreover, such a neglect of an explicit ordinance of Christ casts doubt upon the reality of the supposed faith. There would be more ground for hope were this doubt removed by the confession of faith. 2. The word of God is a means of grace and sanctification in two aspects of it. a. As law. 
the purpose of this is to point out the duty which god requires of man as a subject of his government the effect of the word in this form upon the believer is to produce self-knowledge and humility the believer by the law is made acquainted with indwelling sin meekness and lowliness of heart are the effect of the word in this aspect of it he is kept poor in spirit b as gospel the purpose of this is to disclose the fullness of christ to meet this spiritual poverty preaching should combine the two in just proportions in order to the sanctification of believers the efficacy of the word is from the holy spirit applying it the spirit does not operate upon the truth but upon the soul john eighteen forty three and forty seven why do ye not understand my speech even because ye cannot hear my word he that is of god heareth god's word ye therefore hear them not because ye are not of god one corinthians two fourteen the natural man cannot know the things of the spirit because they are spiritually discerned in using the word the divine spirit works directly upon the soul and produces two effects a the understanding is enlightened and enabled to perceive the truth spiritually b the will is renewed and inclined towards it the aversion of the heart to truth is overcome some lutheran divines represent the holy spirit as operating upon the truth so that the truth becomes an efficient by means of this superadded quality or power the reformed theologians regard the holy spirit as the sole efficient and the truth as only an instrument three the sacraments are means of grace and sanctification in the classical meaning sacramentum was the oath of allegiance taken by the soldier it was also the money pledged by contending parties in a litigated case it implied obligation of some kind the classical is not the biblical or the ecclesiastical signification the latin fathers employed sacramentum as the equivalent of mysterion the sacrament was a mystery the vulgate translates mysterion in ephesians one nine three twenty three five thirty two by sacramentum but as a mystery is exhibited or explained by a symbol the sacramentum was also a symbolum calvin institutes four fourteen two in the biblical or ecclesiastical use a sacrament is a sign or a symbol of a christian mystery of the mystery of regeneration in the case of baptism of the mystery of vicarious atonement in the case of the lord's supper these two sacraments exhibit and certify by sensible emblems to the believing recipient these two mysterious facts in redemption the westminster larger catechism question a hundred and sixty two so defines a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted to signify seal and exhibit to believers the benefits of christ's mediation to strengthen their faith to oblige them to obedience to cherish their love and communion one with another the following are the fundamental positions in the reformed theory of the sacraments a they are means of grace dependent like the other means upon the accompanying operation of the holy spirit and consequent faith in the soul of the recipient says calvin all the energy of operation belongs to the spirit and the sacraments are mere instruments which without his agency are vain and useless but with it are fraught with surprising efficacy the grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments is not conferred by any power in them neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it but upon the work of the spirit westminster confession twenty seven three matthew three eleven i indeed baptize you with water but he shall baptize you with the holy ghost one corinthians twelve thirteen by one spirit we are all baptized into one body one corinthians eleven twenty eight let a man examine himself and so let him eat romans two twenty eight 
neither is that circumcision which is outward. 1 Peter 3.21, the antitype whereunto, namely baptism, doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. b. In the sacrament of the supper, the bread and wine are both symbols and memorials of Christ's body. They both emblematize and remind of a particular fact, namely Christ's atoning death. This is founded on Luke 22.19. This is, i.e. represents, footnote, the substantive verb in this passage has the same signification as in Galatians 4.24, these women are the two covenants, end footnote, my body, this do in remembrance of me. The first clause describes the sacrament as symbolic, the second is mnemonic. Our Lord Jesus instituted the sacrament called the Lord's Supper for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death and a commemoration of the one offering of himself upon the cross. Westminster Confession 29, 1 and 2. C. The act of truly partaking of the Lord's Supper is mental and spiritual, not physical and carnal. The Westminster Confession teaches that the worthy receiver spiritually receives and feeds upon Christ crucified, and denies that he carnally and corporally receives or feeds upon him. It also denies that the body and blood of Christ are corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine, and asserts that they are really but spiritually present to the faith of believers, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. The points in this statement of most importance are a. The believer, in worthily partaking of the Lord's Supper, consciously and confidently relies upon Christ's atoning sacrifice for the remission of his sins. This is meant by the phrase, feed upon Christ crucified. The allusion is to Christ's words in John six fifty three to 56 Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. The flesh and blood of Christ signify the expiatory death of Christ. To drink Christ's blood is to trust in Christ's atonement in a vital manner and with a vivid feeling of its expiatory efficacy. The Lord's Supper can have no meaning if his vicarious sacrifice is denied. b. The presence of Christ is not in the bread or the wine, but in the soul of the participant. Christ, says the Westminster Confession, is present to the faith of believers, and faith is mental and spiritual. The statement of Hooker upon this point is explicit and excellent. The real presence of Christ's most blessed body and blood is not to be sought for in the sacrament, but in the worthy receiver of the sacrament. I see not which way it should be gathered by the words of Christ, when and where the bread is his body or the cup is blood, but only in the very heart and soul of him which receiveth them. As for the sacraments, they really exhibit, but for aught we can gather out of that which is written of them, they are not really, nor do they really contain in themselves that grace which with them or by them it pleaseth God to bestow. Again he remarks, No side denieth but that the soul of man is the receptacle of Christ's presence, whereby the question is driven to a narrower issue, nor doth anything rest doubtful but this, whether when the sacrament is administered, Christ be whole, holy, within man only, or else his body and blood be also externally seated in the very consecrated elements themselves, which opinion they that defend are driven either to consubstantiate and incorporate Christ with elements sacramental, or to transubstantiate and change their substance into his, and so the one to hold him really but invisibly, moulded up with the substance of those elements, the other to hide him under the only visible show of bread and wine, the substance whereof, as they imagine, is abolished and is succeeded in the same room. 
with this statement of hooker calvin agrees they are exceedingly deceived who cannot conceive of any presence of the flesh of christ in the supper except it be attached to the bread for on this principle they leave nothing to the secret operation of the spirit which unites us to christ they suppose christ not to be present unless he descends to us as though we cannot equally enjoy his presence if he elevates us to himself the only question between us therefore respects the manner of this presence because they place christ in the bread and we think it unlawful for us to bring him down from heaven let the reader judge on which side the truth lies only let us hear no more of that calumny that christ is excluded from the sacrament unless he be concealed under the bread for as this is a heavenly mystery there is no necessity to bring christ down to the earth in order to be united to us footnote the presence of christ in the bread and wine themselves would be a local and extended presence because bread and wine are local and extended substances but the presence of christ to the faith of a believer is a presence in his soul which is an illocal and spiritual presence because the soul is an illocal and spiritual substance End footnote. this view of hooker and calvin respecting the solely spiritual presence of christ in the supper was that of the founders of the english church and entered into their form of worship in the office for the communion of the sick in the episcopal prayer-book it is said if a man by reason of extremity of sickness or any other just impediment do not receive the sacrament of christ's body and blood the minister shall instruct him that if he do truly repent of his sins and steadfastly believe that jesus christ hath suffered death upon the cross for him and shed his blood for his redemption earnestly remembering the benefits he hath thereby and giving him hearty thanks therefore he doth eat and drink the body and blood of our saviour christ profitably to his soul's health although he do not receive the sacrament with his mouth the romish theory of the sacraments is that they convey both regenerating and sanctifying grace by their own nature and efficiency by the mere external muscular performance ex opere operato of the rite of baptism or of the supper the effect is produced in the soul bellamine defines the theory thus the sacraments convey grace by the virtue of the sacramental action itself instituted by god for this end and not through the merit of either the agent or the receiver the lutheran doctrine of the sacrament of the supper teaches a that its efficacy is conditioned upon faith in the recipient in this it agrees with the reformed doctrine b that its efficacy is due to an intrinsic virtue resulting from the presence of christ's glorified body in and with the bread and wine this co-presence of christ's glorified body in the emblems makes the sacrament efficacious to the believer in this the lutheran differs from the calvinistic doctrine the latter finds the efficacy of the sacrament in the supper solely in the operation of the holy spirit in the heart of the believer the sacraments become effectual means of salvation not by any power in themselves but only by the working of the holy ghost westminster larger catechism one six one the lutheran asserts that christ is spiritually present in the sacrament of the supper as to the manner but corporeally present as to the substance that is to say the substance of christ's spiritual and glorified body as it now exists in heaven not of his material and unglorified body as it once existed on earth is actually present in and with the sacramental emblems consequently the spiritual and glorified body of christ is present in the bread and wine wherever and whenever the sacrament is administered this requires the ubiquity of christ's glorified body whereby it can simultaneously be in heaven and on earth but the glorified body of christ like that of his people though a spiritual body has form and is extended in space 
The description of Christ's body after his resurrection and at his ascension proves this. But one and the same form cannot occupy two or more spaces at one and the same moment. Christ's glorified body can pass from space to space instantaneously, but cannot fill two spaces at the same instant. When Christ's body passed through the doors being shut, John 20:26, 20, and stood in the midst of the disciples, his body was no longer on the outside of the doors, and could not be. Hooker defines the Lutheran, the Romish, and the Reformed views of the supper as follows. There are but three expositions made of the words, this is my body. The first, this is in itself, before participation, really and truly the natural substance of my body, by reason of the coexistence which my omnipotent body hath with the sanctified element of bread, which is the Lutheran interpretation. The second, this is in itself and before participation the true and natural substance of my body, by force of that deity, which, with the words of consecration, abolisheth the substance of bread, and substituteth in the place thereof my body, which is the popish construction. The third, this hallowed food, through concurrence of divine power, is, in verity and truth, unto faithful receivers, instrumentally a cause of that mystical participation, whereby, as I make myself wholly theirs, so I give them in hand an actual possession of all such saving grace as my sacrificed body can yield, and their souls do presently need this is to them and in them my body according to this statement of hooker which agrees with that of the reformed symbols there are but three generic theories of the sacraments the reformed the lutheran and the romish some would find a fourth theory represented by zwingli this comes from a misapprehension of the views of the swiss reformer the difference between zwingli and calvin upon sacramentarian points has been exaggerated zwingli has been represented as denying that the sacrament of the supper is a means of grace and that christ is present in it the following positions in his ratio fide disprove this he asserts that the sacraments are one res sancte et venerade two testimonium re geste prebunt three vice rerum sunt quas significant since they represent what cannot in itself be directly perceived. 4. Res arduas significant. Having value not for what they are materially, but for what they signify, as a bridal ring is not worth merely the gold of which it is made. 5. They enlighten and instruct through the analogy between the symbol and the thing symbolized. 6. They bring aid and comfort to faith. 7. They take the place of an oath. These positions accord entirely with those in the first Helvetic Confession, which contains Calvin's view of the sacraments, and also with those presented in the articles of the agreement between the churches of Zurich and Geneva. Hagenbach asserts that Zwingli taught that the sacrament is both a symbol and a means of strengthening faith. Siegwart and Zeller, in their monographs upon Zwingli, take the same view. The writer of the article Lord's Supper in Kitto's Encyclopedia represents Zwingli as holding that the Lord's Supper, by presenting under sensible emblems the sufferings and death of Christ, and bringing them to vivid remembrance, deepens penitence, stimulates faith, calls out love, and in this way is a means of sanctification equally with hearing the word, or any other means of grace employed by the Holy Spirit. Zwingli asserted, as strongly as Calvin, the spiritual presence of Christ in the sacrament, denying with him the carnal and corporeal presence, either in the form of transubstantiation or consubstantiation. Christ, he says, is spiritually present in the consciousness of the believer. In the recollection of his sufferings and death, and by faith in these, his body is spiritually eaten. 
we trust in the dying flesh and blood of christ and this faith is called the eating of the body and blood of christ expositio fide compare expositio fide four sixty three and sixty four editor niemeyer the corporeal presence of christ he denied appealing to the authority of augustine as follows augustinus dixit christi corpus in aliquo coeli loco esse oportere propter visi corporis modum non estigitur christi corpus magis in pluribis locisquam nostra corpora expositio fide four fifty one editor niemeyer zwingli regarded the sacrament of the supper as a means of grace and sanctification because of its didactic character because by evidently setting forth before the eyes jesus christ crucified galatians three one it teaches in a vivid and special manner the great truth of christ's atonement and redemption and confirms the soul of the believer in it it is an object lesson in this respect the function of the sacrament is like that of the word gospel truth is taught by both alike both alike are employed by the holy spirit in enlightening strengthening and comforting the mind of the believer this feature in zwingli's view is sometimes cited to prove a radical difference between him and calvin but calvin is even more explicit and positive on this point the office of the sacraments he says is precisely the same as that of the word of god which is to offer and present christ to us and in him the treasures of heavenly grace but they confer no advantage or profit without being received by faith it is necessary to guard against being drawn into error from reading the extravagant language used by the fathers with a view to exalt the dignity of the sacraments lest we should suppose there is some secret power annexed and attached to the sacraments so that they communicate the grace of the holy spirit just as wine is given in the cup whereas the only office assigned to them is to testify and confirm his benevolence towards us nor do they impart any benefit unless they are accompanied by the holy spirit to open our minds and hearts and render us capable of receiving this testimony for the sacraments fulfil in us on the part of god the same office as messengers of joyful intelligence or earnests for the confirmation of covenants on the part of men god nourishes our faith in a spiritual manner by the sacraments which are instituted for the purpose of placing his promises before our eyes for our contemplation and of serving as pledges of them for this reason augustine calls a sacrament a visible word because it represents the promises of god portrayed as in a picture and places before our eyes an image of them connected with the preaching of the gospel another assistance and support of our faith is afforded us in the sacraments there is no true administration of the sacrament without the word for whatever advantage accrues to us from the sacred supper requires the word whether we are to be confirmed in the faith exercised in confession or excited to duty there is no need of preaching nothing more preposterous therefore can be done with respect to the supper than to convert it into a mute action as we have seen done under the tyranny of the pope a person who supposes that the sacraments confer any more upon him than that which is offered by the word of god and which he receives by a true faith is greatly deceived hence also it may be concluded that confidence of salvation does not depend on the participation of the sacrament as though that constituted our justification which we know to be placed in jesus christ alone and is to be communicated to us no less by the preaching of the word than by the sealing of the sacraments and that it may be completely enjoyed without this participation this view of the nature of the sacrament of the supper as didactic is also confirmed by considering the nature and purpose of a symbol the purpose of a symbol is to teach a certain truth by a visible sign or token the ocean is a symbol of god's immensity and the sun of his glory 
the invisible things or truths relating to god are emblematized and impressed by the things that are made romans one twenty the heavens are a symbol of god because they declare the glory of god psalm nineteen one the cross is a symbol in all christendom of the sacrifice of christ it teaches emblematically the truth that the son of god died for man's sin the ark again is a symbol of the church and teaches that men are safe within the kingdom of god in the case of all these natural symbols there is no efficacy in the symbol as such but only in the truth taught by it the ocean the sun the cross the ark make no spiritual impression as mere water light and wood it is only the immensity and glory of god as taught by the symbols of the ocean and the sun that affect the mind it is only the mercy of god as suggested by the symbol of the cross and the ark that produces the spiritual effect the bread and wine of the lord's supper are specially and divinely appointed symbols differing in this respect from all natural symbols they are also seals as well as symbols differing in this respect also from natural symbols but as symbols they are didactic and teach that truth which is the heart of the christian religion namely that the broken and bleeding body of christ is the oblation for sin footnote the lord's supper took the place of the jewish passover christ our passover is sacrificed for us one corinthians five seven the passover was a divinely appointed symbol reminding of and setting forth the deliverance of the firstborn by the sprinkling of blood but the paschal lamb was also typical of the lamb of god so that the visible emblem in the instance both of the passover and the supper teaches the expiation of sin by christ's vicarious sacrifice End footnote. they are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by god to represent christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him westminster confession twenty eight one but in this instance too as in that of natural symbols it is the truth taught by the symbols and not the symbols themselves that strengthens the faith of the participant deepens his gratitude enlivens his hope and sanctifies his heart as mere bread and wine the symbols produce no spiritual effect in the soul of the believer when the holy spirit enlightens the mind of the participant to perceive the gospel truth which these emblems exhibit signify and seal then and only then do they become means of sanctification it is not because the glorified body of christ is conjoined with them as the lutheran asserts or because they are converted into the glorified body of christ as the romanist asserts that they are effectual it is because of the spiritual presence of christ in the soul of the participant and the spiritual perception of the truth signified and sealed by the emblem as calvin and hooker say that they are means of grace the sacrament of baptism is the sign and seal of regeneration it is emblematic and didactic of this doctrine baptism is not a means of regeneration as the lord's supper is of sanctification it does not confer the holy spirit as a regenerating spirit but is the authentic token that the holy spirit has been or will be conferred that regeneration has been or will be effected this is taught in romans four eleven abraham received the sign of circumcision a seal of the faith which he had being yet uncircumcised baptism is christian circumcision the circumcision of christ colossians two eleven and takes the place of the jewish circumcision so that what is true of the latter is of the former paul cornelius and the eunuch were regenerated before they were baptized as circumcision was not absolutely necessary to salvation neither is baptism this is shown by the omission of it in mark sixteen sixteen when damnation is spoken of baptism being the initiatory sacrament is administered only once while symbolical only of regeneration it yet has a connection with sanctification 
being a divinely appointed sign seal and pledge of the new birth it promotes the believer's growth in holiness by encouragement and stimulus it is like the official seal on a legal document the presence of the seal inspires confidence in the genuineness of the title deed the absence of the seal awakens doubts and fears nevertheless it is the title deed not the seal that conveys the title baptism is to be administered to believers and their children footnote proselyte baptism included the whole family males and females adults and infants it was associated also with the circumcision of the males some time before the advent the whole nation of the idumeans embraced judaism rather than be expelled from their country josephus says that helena queen of adiatum and her son became proselytes on this subject see maimonides wall history of baptism lightfoot hammond on baptism End footnote. acts two thirty eight and thirty nine the promise of the gift of the holy ghost verse thirty eight is unto you and your children romans eleven sixteen if the root be holy so are the branches one corinthians seven fourteen the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband else were your children unclean but now are they holy matthew twenty eight nineteen go teach disciple all nations baptizing them if the command had been go teach all nations circumcising them no one would have denied that infants were included in the command infants are called disciples in acts fifteen ten why tempt ye god to put a yoke namely circumcision upon the neck of the disciples accordingly the westminster confession affirms that the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized the baptism of the infant of a believer supposes the actual or prospective operation of the regenerating spirit in order to the efficacy of the rite. infant baptism does not confer the regenerating spirit but is a sign that he either has been or will be conferred in accordance with the divine promise in the covenant of grace the actual conferring of the holy spirit may be prior to baptism or in the act itself or subsequent to it hence baptism is the sign and seal of regeneration either in the past in the present or in the future the westminster confession teaches that the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered in other words the regenerating grace of the spirit signified and sealed by the rite may be imparted when the infant is baptized or previously or at a future time the baptism is administered in this reference and with this expectation baptism is to be administered to be a sign and seal of regeneration and engrafting into christ and that even to infants larger catechism one seven seven under the old dispensation the circumcision of the flesh was a sign and seal of the circumcision of the heart deuteronomy ten sixteen thirty six god says calvin did not favour infants with circumcision without making them partakers of all those things which were then signified by circumcision similarly under the new dispensation the baptism of the body of the infant is the sign and seal of the baptism of the soul by the holy ghost the infant of the believer receives the holy spirit as a regenerating spirit by virtue of the covenant between god and his people genesis seventeen seven i will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a god unto thee and to thy seed after thee acts two thirty nine the promise of the gift of the holy spirit verse thirty eight is unto you and your children the infant of the believer consequently obtains the regenerating grace by virtue of his birth and descent from a believer in covenant with god and not by virtue of his baptism god has promised the blessing of the holy spirit to those who are born of his people 
the infant of a believer by this promise is born into the church as the infant of a citizen is born into the state children born within the pale of the visible church and dedicated to god in baptism are under the inspection and government of the church directory for worship nine they are church members by reason of their birth from believing parents and it has been truly said that the question that confronts them at the period of discretion is not will you join the visible church but will you go out of it church membership by birth from believers is an appointment of god under both the old and the new economies in the jewish and the christian church baptism is the infallible sign of regeneration when the infant dies in infancy all baptized infants dying before the age of self-consciousness are regenerated without exception baptism is the probable sign of regeneration when the infant lives to years of discretion it is possible that the baptized child of believing parents may prove in the day of judgment not to have been regenerated but not probable the history of the church and daily observation show it to be the general fact that infant church members become adult church members yet exceptions are possible a baptized infant on reaching years of discretion may to human view appear not to have been regenerated as a baptized convert may the fact of unregeneracy however must be proved before it can be acted upon a citizen of the state must be presumed to be such until the contrary appears by his renunciation of citizenship and self-expatriation until he takes this course he must be regarded as a citizen so a baptized child in adult years may renounce his baptism and church membership become an infidel and join the synagogue of satan but until he does this he must be regarded as a member of the church of christ such instances are exceedingly rare both in church and state the possible exceptions to the general fact that baptism is the sign of regeneration are not more numerous in the case of baptized infants than of baptized converts says hodge it is not every baptized child who is saved nor are all those who are baptized in infancy made partakers of salvation but baptism signs seals and actually conveys its benefits to all its subjects whether infants or adults who keep the covenant of which it is a sign it does not follow that the benefits of redemption may not be conferred on infants at the time of their baptism that is in the hands of god what is to hinder the imputation to them of the righteousness of christ or their receiving the renewing of the holy ghost so that their whole nature may be developed in a state of reconciliation with god doubtless this often occurs but whether it does or not their baptism stands good it assures them of salvation if they do not renounce their baptismal covenant the reason why there is not an infallible connection between infant baptism and regeneration when the infant lives to years of discretion so that all baptized children of true believers are regenerated without a single exception is the fact that the covenant is not observed on the human side with absolute perfection should the believer keep the promise on his part with entire completeness god would be bound to fulfil the promise on his part but the believer's fulfilment of the terms of the covenant in respect to faith in god's promise to prayer to the nurture and education of the child though filial and spiritual is yet imperfect god is therefore not absolutely indebted to the believer by reason of the believer's action in respect to the regeneration of the child consequently he may exercise a sovereignty if he so please in the bestowment of regenerating grace even in the case of a believer's child we have seen that the regeneration of an unbaptized adult depending as it does upon election cannot be made infallibly certain by the use of common grace though it may be made highly probable by it in like manner the regeneration of a baptized child depending also upon election may be made highly probable by the imperfect faith and fidelity of the parents yet not infallibly and necessarily certain 
the mode of baptism which is by far the most common in the history of the christian church is sprinkling or pouring from the time of christ to the present a vastly greater number have been sprinkled than have been immersed at the present day sprinkling is the rule throughout christendom and immersion the exception the former mode is catholic the latter is denominational sprinkling was the common mode of baptism in the old testament and this fact furnishes the strongest presumption that it was the mode of christ and his apostles as the apostolic polity confessedly grew out of the jewish synagogue it is equally certain that the apostolic ceremonial and ritual grew out of the jewish polity and ritual are indissolubly associated baptizing under the old economy was an important rite and would certainly influence the mode under the new the old testament baptism therefore is of the utmost consequence in settling the dispute respecting the mode of baptism and its subjects the following particulars are to be noted one sacramental baptism by the levitical priest was always administered by sprinkling never by immersion a the whole congregation at sinai were baptized by sprinkling exodus twenty four six to eight hebrews nine nineteen and twenty b the levites when consecrating to office were baptized by sprinkling numbers eight seven thus shalt thou do unto them to cleanse them sprinkle water of purifying upon them c lepers and defiled persons when restored to the congregation were baptized by sprinkling leviticus fourteen four to seven forty nine to fifty three numbers nineteen eighteen and nineteen thirty one nineteen twenty two and twenty three luke five fourteen d gentiles when admitted to the jewish church were baptized by sprinkling numbers thirty one twelve and nineteen these baptisms could be performed only by a priest or by some clean person appointed to act for him numbers nineteen eighteen and nineteen a clean person shall sprinkle water upon the unclean the baptism in these instances was sacramental i e had reference to guilt and expiatory cleansing hence the blood of a sacrificial victim was sprinkled upon the congregation at sinai and upon the levites and restored lepers no individual could baptize himself with this sacramental and expiatory baptism it was a priestly act and required the priest or his appointed agent two baptism by jehovah in both the old economy and the new is by sprinkling or pouring the jehovah of the old testament is the christ of the new and is the great high priest he baptizes with the holy spirit matthew three eleven he shall baptize you with the holy spirit and with fire this baptism is never by immersion isaiah fifty two fifteen he shall sprinkle many nations ezekiel thirty six twenty five then will i sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean and new heart will i give you hebrews ten twenty two let us draw near to god having our hearts sprinkled erantis menu from an evil conscience hebrews twelve twenty four the blood of sprinkling rantis more that speaketh better things than the blood of abel one peter one two elect unto sprinkling of the blood of jesus christ isaiah thirty two fifteen until the spirit be poured upon us from on high joel two twenty eight proverbs one twenty three i will pour out my spirit unto you three ceremonial baptisms or washings were administered by sprinkling or pouring not by immersion these baptisms had reference not to the guilt of sin but its pollution sometimes they were administered by the person himself and sometimes by the priest when a man ceremonially washed his hands this was called a baptism luke eleven thirty eight when the pharisee saw it he marvelled that he had not first washed evaptiste before dinner mark seven four 
when they come from the market, except they wash, baptize, vaptisonte, codex alexandrinus, codex claromontanus, codex augiensis, receive text, tischendorf, are sprinkled, rantisonte, codex sinaiticus, codex vaticanus, codex ephraimi, Lachman, Hort. They eat not, and many other things there be, which they have received to hold, as the washings, vaptismus, of cups, pots, and brazen vessels, and of tables. The ceremonial baptism of the hands was performed by having a servant pour water upon them, and the ceremonial baptism of cups, pots, vessels, and tables was by sprinkling or pouring, as in Numbers 19.18, a clean person shall sprinkle water upon the tent, and upon all the vessels of the unclean person. Footnote. Whether the baptism of Naaman, 2 Kings 5, 10, and 14, was sacramental or ceremonial is doubtful. If it was sacramental like that of the restored leper under the Levitical economy, it was performed by a priest or his deputy, and was administered by sprinkling. This is the view of Baird, Bible History of Baptism, page 157. He explains the command, Go wash, 2 Kings 5, 10, by Acts 22, 16. Ananias said to Saul, Rise, baptize thyself, vaptise, and wash away thy sins. Here the baptism is described as self-administered, as it is in Naaman's case, though really administered by another. If, on the other hand, Naaman's baptism was ceremonial, like the ceremonial washing of the blind man in the pool of Siloam, John 9, 7, it was by pouring. End footnote. Now, since sprinkling or pouring was the invariable mode of baptism under the old economy, it is probable, in the very highest degree, that John the Baptist employed this mode. Baptism was a priestly act, as is implied in the inquiry, Why baptizest thou, if thou be not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor that prophet? John 1.25 John was a priest of the family of Aaron, Luke 1.5, and naturally administered the rite by sprinkling or pouring, as the Jewish priest had administered it from time immemorial. There is not a scintilla of proof that he introduced immersion. And this same mode would naturally be adopted by the apostles when our Lord substituted baptism for circumcision and transferred the rite from the old dispensation to the new, from the Jewish to the Christian church. Peter associates preaching peace by Jesus Christ with the baptism which John preached, Acts 10.36 and 37. The principal supports of the mode by immersion are a. The custom in the patristic church of immersing in the lava of the baptistry, and b. The classical meaning of vapto and baptizo. Concerning the first argument, it is to be noticed first that the baptistry dates from a period when Christianity had become powerful and able to erect churches with all the appointments of an imposing ritual. The apostolic church could not do this. The baptistry and lava are as late as the fourth century. Furthermore, the first baptismal fonts were too small for immersing. The fresco in the catacombs of St. Calixtus, 200 AD, according to Rossi, represents the rite administered by pouring from the vessel upon the person standing upright. The teachings of the apostles, AD 160, says that baptism may be performed by pouring. Secondly, a more profuse application of water than that of sprinkling or pouring belongs to a period in the history of the church when baptism was held to be regeneration itself. If water be efficacious when applied by the officiating minister, then immersion would be deemed more efficacious than sprinkling. 
emotion grew with the growth of the sacramentarian theory of baptism and the doctrine of baptismal regeneration respecting the classical meaning of vapto and baptizo it is to be observed that these words had no technical or ritual signification in classical greek they were never used to denote a pagan rite they were purifying rites in the greek and roman worship but they were not called baptisms the greeks denominated their purifying rite catharsis and the romans theirs lustratio sprinkling was the mode in both the nouns baptismos baptisma and baptistes are not in the classical vocabulary they were coined by jews and christians from baptizo in order to denote the rite of purification in the jewish and christian churches consequently it is the secondary technical use in the jewish and christian scriptures not the primary untechnical meaning in the greek classics which must be considered in determining the mode of baptism footnote in the later time of the roman empire when public baths were erected the bathing tub or labrum was called baptisterium the term was probably borrowed from the christian usage but the labrum was not large enough to immerse the whole body water was taken from it and poured upon the head of the person standing in it or beside it anthon's dictionary of antiquities article baths page one hundred and forty eight end footnote the classical meaning of vapto and vaptizo is to dip into water to sink under water to dye or tinge in a fluid the classical meaning would favour baptism by immersion as the classical meaning of sacramentum would prove that the christian sacrament is an oath but in hebraistic and new testament greek vapto and vaptizo are employed in a secondary ceremonial signification to denote a jewish and christian rite consequently their meaning in the septuagint and new testament must be determined by their ritual and historical use not by their classical the word pagans bagani etymologically and classically denoted persons living in the villages pagi outside of the large towns and cities classically pagans were villagers as christianity spread first among the inhabitants of the cities the villagers were the unevangelized and thus pagan came to mean heathen instead of villager similarly vapto and vaptizo which in heathenism denoted any unceremonial non-ritual immersion into water when adopted by judaism and christianity came to have the secondary signification of a ceremonial sprinkling or effusion of water and he who argues that baptism means immersion in the scriptures because in the classics the primary meaning of vapto and vaptizo is to immerse commits the same error with him who should argue that a pagan is a villager because this was the original signification of paganus or that the christian sacramentum is an oath and not a symbol because this is its meaning in livy and tacitus the word baptizo is employed in the septuagint to signify a ritual purification performed by applying water to a person or thing so as to wet it more or less but not all over and entirely footnote an example of the application of the term baptized to a wetting of the person that is not immersion is found in daniel four thirty three nebuchadnezzar's body was wet evaphe with the dew of heaven another is found in judith twelve seven judith washed herself evaptizeto in a fountain of water by the camp that this was not an immersion is highly certain because the fountain would be used for drinking and culinary purposes and though the washing was in the night yet in a camp there would be nearly as little privacy by night as by day End footnote. 
the passages that have been quoted prove indisputably that the mode in which the baptismal water of ritual purification was applied under the levitical law was sprinkling or pouring there was no immersion of the body in the sacramental baptism for guilt or in the ceremonial baptism for pollution and the spiritual baptism of the holy ghost was pouring not immersion there is no good reason for supposing that the new testament use of baptizo is different from that of the septuagint historically there is the highest probability that john the baptist and christ's apostles employed the old mode and did not invent a new one like immersion so different from the mode in both jewish and gentile lustrations furthermore the circumstances and customs of the jews necessitated sprinkling or effusion it is morally certain that such baptisms as those of pentecost acts two forty one of the eunuch acts eight thirty six of cornelius and his family acts ten forty seven and of the jailer acts sixteen thirty three were not administered by immersion in the narrative of the baptism of the eunuch it is said that the way that goeth down from jerusalem to gaza is desert acts eight twenty six the whole region is sandy and dry with only here and there a small spring of water in the account of the baptism of cornelius and all his house acts ten two the phraseology implies that the baptismal water was brought into the room can any one forbid the water to udor, that these should not be baptized acts ten forty seven this phraseology would be unnatural if the water in question were in a river pond or reservoir but natural if it were in a vessel no one would forbid the hudson or connecticut river it is improbable that within the precincts of the jail there was either a stream or reservoir of water sufficient for immersing in the dead of night the jailer and all his the immersion of three thousand in jerusalem on one day at pentecost acts two forty one would have required the use of the public reservoirs of the city which the jewish authorities would have been as little likely to have allowed as the common council of new york city would in a similar case christ certainly had reference to the old testament baptism and to john's baptism when he said to nicodemus except a man be born of water and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of god john three five christian baptism in the name of the trinity had not yet been instituted nicodemus was a pharisee and our lord wished to rid him of all self-righteousness by telling him that he must confess sin with publicans and sinners and submit to the old and common jewish rite that was emblematic of forgiveness and cleansing though he was a ruler of the jews and a master of israel he must take the same attitude with the multitude who were baptized in jordan confessing their sins matthew three five all the people that heard john and the publicans justified god being baptized with the baptism of john but the pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of god against themselves being not baptized of him luke seven twenty nine and thirty this is our lord's account of john's baptism and of the state of mind in those who submitted to it and those who rejected it john's baptism was like that of peter on the day of pentecost a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins luke three three acts two thirty eight nineteen four and the remission in both cases alike was through christ the lamb of god who taketh away the sin of the world john one twenty nine john directed his disciples to christ exactly as the apostles did theirs john looking upon jesus as he walked saith behold the lamb of god john one thirty six then said paul john verily baptized with the baptism of repentance saying unto the people that they should believe on him who should come after him that is on jesus christ acts nineteen four 
the apostles were baptized with John's baptism and were not rebaptized by Christ. Apollos knew only the baptism of John, Acts 18.25, and was not rebaptized. Footnote. There is an apparent exception to this in Acts 19.5. Bengal's explanation is that these persons had not known that they were bound by the baptism of repentance to faith in Jesus Christ. John's baptism had not been administered to them with an intelligent understanding on their part of the meaning of the rite. Had it been, they would not have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Says Bengal on Acts 19.5, the baptism which is mentioned in Matthew 3.6 and Matthew 28.19 was one, otherwise there would not have been the beginning of the gospel in John the Baptist, Mark 1.1-3, and the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26 would be older than baptism in Matthew 28. End footnote. Immersion has been supported by the equivocal rendering of the verb synthapto in Romans 6.4, Colossians 2.12. In Romans 6.4, the rendering is buried by baptism. In Colossians 2.12, buried in baptism. The English word bury is applicable either to burial in earth or in water, but the Greek word synthapto is applicable only to burial in earth. No one would render it by immerse. The English word bury can suggest immersion, but the Greek cannot. Consequently, when a person unacquainted with the original reads in the English version of a burial in baptism or by baptism, a burial in water is the only idea that enters his mind, an idea which the Greek positively excludes. For when a dead body is buried in a tomb as our Lord was, it comes into no contact with water and is carefully protected from it. Had Sunthapto been translated literally by entombed instead of buried, this text never would have been quoted, as it so frequently has been, to prove that Christian baptism is immersion. Christ's entombment, or burial in Joseph's sepulchre, has not the slightest connection with his baptism at the Jordan, and throws no light upon the mode in which he was baptized, and consequently it throws no light upon the mode in which his disciples were. Matthew Henry, on Romans 6.4, remarks as follows, Why this burying in baptism should so much as allude to any custom of dipping under water in baptism, any more than our baptismal crucifixion and death should have any such reference, I confess I cannot see. It is plain that it is not the sign but the thing signified in baptism that the apostle here calls being buried with Christ, and the expression of burying alludes to Christ's burial in a tomb, as Christ was buried in a tomb, that he might rise again to a new and more heavenly life, so are we in baptism buried in a tomb that is cut off from the life of sin, that we may rise again to a new life of faith and love. End of section 11. End of Dogmatic Theology, Soteriology by William G. T. Shedd.